Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BA Systems Applied Intelligence. Today we're talking about a significant challenge that many banks face when it comes to detecting and preventing criminal activity that's targeted at their organisation. You can find out more about the work that we're doing around this by going to basystems.com forward slash problem shared. I'm Ben Tudor, I had a hand in writing the main report and a few of the other assets around it, but I'm joined today by uh, two of our data strategists at Applied Intelligence, Holly Armitage and Chris Blood. Um, Now, this challenge I mentioned is quite a significant one. Banks tend to have internal silos that separate the data, insight and intelligence from fraud, compliance and cybersecurity teams into isolated pots. And this is something that both Holly and uh, Chris are are very familiar with. Um, The problem with this... um, issue with banks is that criminals who are committing fraud, laundering money and hacking banks all seem to be the same people. You're pretty sure they don't all self-rate in silos that the banks have. We've noticed of late that several banks are changing their approach and that's the impetus for our report, Problem Shared, Problem Solved. The thing is, this problem of siloed organisations isn't unique to banks or even to the financial sector. Um, And this is why we've got Holly and Chris in the room today. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the problem of siloed information, data and intelligence within organisations? Is this something that you've come across before? Hi Ben, yeah definitely. So when I first joined BAE, I was a civil servant in government before joining. I kind of thought it was silos with something I experienced working in industry and coming over to BAE Systems Applied Intelligence, nearly all the client groups I've worked in from defence, government, financial services, all experienced silos and all experienced the, the impacts of silos, whether it's not knowing who to speak to, or information being held in pockets, or perhaps just not being aligned on how their part of the organisation contributes towards that our client's strategic ambition or vision. So for me, it's almost uh, nearly all of our clients experience silos. Chris, what's your thoughts? Hi, Ben. Hi, Holly. Um, yeah, I would agree. I think we see it in all organisations uh, to some degree, uh, one of the customers I'm working with at the moment in uh, our government business unit. I'm actually working on more of a system integration program, but as part of that, the reports I'm hearing from an awful lot of stakeholders is that they're concerned they can't get access to data. Uh, And one of the opportunities they see in the program I'm working in is to change that and, and, and lodge their requirement to get access to new data. I think the impacts across the organisation uh, can be huge. Uh, there are really interesting data sets. I always pick on uh, finance and HR because the people and the money are the most interesting things. And they're often the hardest data sets to get access to. And they're often the data sets that are kept separate. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because whenever you're working with organisations, normally we're brought in to support a business unit or a particular business problem. And I often, we often ask the client or ask the organisation, who's your HR, who's your risk, who's your legal content? So I think sometimes the perception that silos are just in the business, they're not in the, the functions that enable and help the business to grow. And I think they're often overlooked, the HR and the legal and the finance teams. And this is quite a natural thing as well. Every organisation has them. They're usually there for good reason, HR and finance do hold information that actually you don't necessarily always want to share around the organisation freely. So it's a common problem. Is there a common solution? 
What's a great question? Um, <laughs> I think part of the thing about silos is what you what we see of a silo. So you you see um, people not talking, or you hear um, kind of gripes from senior leaders that their, their people aren't trained or perhaps aren't playing nice, we often get. Um, I think the challenge sometimes is they're, they're the symptoms. That's what you're seeing. Sometimes the root cause of a silo is perhaps that overall organisational strategy isn't clear and people aren't clear what they're doing or there's perhaps a... Uh, they're disaligned at the senior level about where the, where the organisation is going. So I don't think there is always... Um, a one-size-fits-all solution and in our infographic we've tried to pull on what we think are some of the, the the key areas to focus on if you were kind of looking at this over a hundred days for me it's around the cultural and the, the cultural aspects of a silo so when we're working with organizations of trying to kind of overcome silos but how do we shift that mindset from this is a, my problem my team my area to actually this is our organization our problem our opportunity I think that's to, to kind of extend that kind of mine to ours mindset, I think one of the key things is is data. Mm. In terms of silos, it's not always that you can't uh, access the data, it's that there is a gatekeeper. There's someone who says, that's my data, not your data. And I think there's a big cultural shift in all parties in an organisation coming to a, a realisation that it's the organisation's data and you need to be an enabler for joining it up. That's how you add value, not by holding it. You, you may think you're stewarding it really well, but as long as it's inaccessible to anyone else, you're limiting that value that can be created from it. Definitely. Yeah, so it's not necessarily about sort of interdepartmental jealousies. It's actually people trying to do the right thing, being very conscientious and saying, could we share this data? Are we allowed to share this data or this intelligence with other parts of the organisation? And uh, speaking to... Um, uh, one of our um, uh, subject matter experts the other day about this and he said you know it's quite interesting when you look at the legislation that um, has been passed to allow banks to share data with law enforcement it says one thing and then you know the banks are still quite nervous about sh- you know about doing what the law actually says they need specific um, guidance from a government department say actually yes it is okay you're not going to be prosecuted for this it is for the greater good and you know, that's them being conscientious and also being not risk averse but but being very careful about um, something that they hold, which is actually quite sensitive and quite um, and, and could potentially be quite damaging to to their customers or to society. Um, going back to the infographic, there's, there's some really interesting sort of angles in this, and I think you know, you, you mentioned there, uh, Holly, that um, it's a lot about people. And you know, when we look at the main report, it's a lot about looking at silos within organisations, looking at the uh, the data and the intelligence side of things, but as you say, you know, getting over this cultural hurdle and making it, making it work, making people within companies happy to share, is a really tricky thing. I'd quite like to get both of your thoughts on how you've overcome that problem in the past with possibly other clients. So I think, firstly, you need to have clarity over the end-to-end process, because you're right, people can be a huge enabler. But if you don't get the right people involved at the right time, then that can trip you up. So the good thing about the infographic is it sets out an an end-to-end process. Uh, I think in a specific organisation, you then need to go to the next level. So what do I mean by an end-to-end process? I worked on a project uh, last year where it was in the transport sector. uh, And it was was a pilot, so it was two months uh, of work. 
looking at process analysis and also data analysis uh, with a particular interest in insider threat. Now, the data aspect, we could kind of understand at a high level because we as an organization it actually quite often impose more rigorous data controls than our customers. We're extremely strict on those things. Um, but in terms of the analysis, in terms of the findings, it doesn't just end with we found something interesting in a in a scenario where you're talking inside a threat in a major organization. So you need to understand what comes next and who needs to be involved. In that context, what comes next? In the event, it turned out, it, it's a question of, could we please have that list of interesting people that you've just found? We might need to go to law enforcement. Now, they weren't in the loop from the start, so that, that then <laughs> became a, quite an interesting discussion. Um, and it was only a pilot, so it was almost proving the initial case that they needed to be thinking through both making better use of their data, but also where do they go from there? I think pilots are a great way to have a go and try things. I think often we're seeing silos, it's the cultural ch challenges, the cultural aspects, it's how do we use pilots, use small use cases to have a go, to try, build some credibility, build some trust, see what works, importantly see what doesn't always work, yeah. and then kind of you use those as, as a chance to kind of showcase what you can achieve by kind of collaborative cross-working, whether it's by working with different data sets, different people, approaching a problem differently. I think Chris's point about pilots and proof of concepts for me is really important. How do you how do you get going? How do you stop talking about a silo? Because I think when you think about silos, they're not a new management term or fad. They've been around for years and years and years. If you look at any management books from the last 20, 30 years, my money's on it, it mentions them. So how do you do something actually genuinely different? Yeah. And it's that sort of proof of concept that I think is quite interesting. I mean, you know, the, the whole idea of starting small... Um, doing something that's not necessarily too complicated or too big or too risky, but which shows people the value. Um, I think that's a, you know, it's, it's a really interesting uh, approach to take. I'm, I'm quite curious as to, you know, when you've seen this happen with other organisations that you've worked with, you know, what is it that's tipped people over the edge that's made the leadership maybe stand up and go, right, yeah, we definitely need to do this, we need to get on board and make this happen. So for me, one of the projects I worked on a couple of years ago was a, uh, a, a large data sharing project to kind of explore the value of sharing data to prevent criminal activity. So something, what I think kind of tipped over the edge, to use your phrase, was when we presented our findings back to our sponsors, they were used to expecting person X to have this view, person Y to have that, person Z an another view. And suddenly everyone was saying similar words, similar phrases. So I think when when sponsors or senior stakeholders or any stakeholder commissions a piece of work, you have expectations. You roughly know that what people are going to be saying for, for a project because that's kind of their behaviour and who they are. And then when you work on a proof of concept and you try something a bit different and you give people the space to do so, I think which I think is a really important aspect of proof of concepts breaking silos. You can't just expect people to do it. You have to change the environment somewhat. But it's when the stakeholders see actually the group are all seen from the same hymn sheet, they actually all believe in the power of that collaborative exercise. That's, I believe, sometimes more, in, more powerful than just the results themselves, you know, an increase in, I know, efficiency or, or whatever. Yeah, you can only make a recommendation so many times. But if everybody in the organisation is saying, yeah, this is the way to go. And there's something really powerful about seeing people 
who have changed what they think. You know, they, they, they enter into a proof of concept and their original view is, I don't know, Chris can't do this or Chris can't do that or they always say no. And then and then suddenly throughout the throughout the proof of concept, because it's a set defined project with, you know, very clear expectations, their their perception and their experiences change. And then that word of mouth, I always think it's really important who you bring into a proof of concept team. They've got to be your advocates. You've got to have a few naysayers in there, people who are willing to, who would always say, well, not that's going to work. Watching those people be changed, I think is really powerful for an organisation and for kind of the other people watching a proof of concept. So uh, I'm going in, going into a bank, as, as we're doing, as a, as a sort of a bit of a sure. paper exercise here. Um, you know, you've got 100 days to make the change. You've got um, you know, a cybersecurity team, you've got a compliance team, you've got um, a fraud uh, department as well. And they know each other. They might actually be in different buildings or even in different countries. They know they should work together, but they're so busy with the sort of here and now, and they're so concerned about this need to make sure that data is protected, that maybe they don't necessarily know how to make that sort of first collaborative step. So this is something you've outlined in the infographic. Really interested to see you know, who are the people that need to be persuaded first, who need to say, right, yep, we need to do this, we need to free up time to do this, and so on and so forth. So I think when Chris and I were discussing this a couple of weeks ago, we thought one of the key things is how do we ensure that you actually have the people you appoint to, to lead and champion this programme, how do they have the headspace to do so? So often silo problems or silo uh, proof of concepts are seen as a bolt-on to a main project. There's something that's probably normally come up in the requirement stage or when you're kind of scoping out a problem and you, can, you just get asked, well, just sort out that while you're doing it. So I think with our 100-day kind of problem-solve activity, we looked at how do you how does this become the main focus so our first one was you know, is about appointing leads from fraud cyber and and compliance to kind of take this problem on they don't necessarily have to be the most senior people in an organization but they have to be people who are passionate and people who the organization both from a senior level but also people doing the work um respect enough to to kind of to, to lead and spearhead this so people who are you know enabled to exercise their choice and judgment and are respected and trusted to do so. So I think identifying your three leads or your three champions from these areas is probably the most important aspect. And then then be given the time to do so. This isn't just a bolt on to your day job. If an organisation is really serious about unlocking the benefits um, uh, of joint working collaboration and reducing silos, individuals have to have the time and space to do so. I think you were quite strong there, Chris, weren't you, getting people away from the day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, so identifying the right people is important. And I think authority is, that has to be one of the the predicates for kind of getting started. Um, And it's not just authority. I think it's, it's that cover that says, we understand that the thing that you would normally spend your work week doing won't get done. And we either accept that, that will pause for a while or we'll make some contingency arrangements so that you won't be called away, which can be half the problem is you think you're on the right track and then something major happens and your key stakeholder disappears for a few weeks to sort something out. I think the other two things that it would always be good to have within that initial team, firstly pain, and I don't mean people experiencing kind of you know hitting each other or anything, but but it's, it's, it's one of those strange things. As, as consultants, we can come in and assess an organisation and give a really good objective piece of feedback on what the organisation is doing well and what they're not doing well. 
And a lot of organisations, they may recognise, yes, we don't do that well, but it's the so what. Mm. And if it's been that way for a decade or more, then they cease to see it as pain because their world is full of workarounds. So day to day, they don't see how taking time out to do this is going to make their world any better because what's wrong with their world at the moment? And then the other aspect is, combined with that, is buy-in. That idea of, yeah, I'm, re I'm interested in being involved. I haven't just been told by someone that I will be involved. Actually, that permission from above is go for it, enjoy yourself, get engaged, get involved, and, and come back and tell us what you've learned. There's also a slightly sort of negative political aspect to this almost as well, which I, you know, I was going through the infographic, we were looking through the, the, the paper, and, and I sort of, the, the question I asked was, if you remove silos, there's obviously this fear within an organisation, if you, if you create efficiencies, then that inevitably means layoffs and all the rest of it. And you know, talking to Rob Horton, one of the SMEs behind this report, you know, he said, forget about that, it's, it's about creating effectiveness. If you make it easier for people to do a really good job, that's a great efficiency driver for any organisation. Laying people off isn't necessarily the way to go. Um, but I do wonder whether, you know, you, you've, you've set up this team to break down silos, that they might sort of face a little bit of resentment or perhaps suspicion from the organisation that actually what they're doing is working out how many people can, they, can, they can hand pink slips to. How do you get over that? For me, it's about picking your first proof of concepts which are really important. Why, why are those proof of concepts so important? What are those shared pain points, as Chris, as Chris had mentioned earlier? What are those areas where everyone from your three teams experience, experiences an, an issue? But then also we discussed earlier about data, you know, the value data presents isn't always about efficiencies, it's about doing things differently, adding values, finding new and novel ways to solve problems. We're seeing more and more that organisations are looking to use data for, for, strategic, for strategic advantage. So how can we enhance our customer experience? How can we deliver an even better uh, customer uh, service? So sometimes with our silos, it's by removing them, actually it's not about removing roles or jobs, it's about finding new ways to give an even better customer experience or uh, deliver a product differently. So more about effectiveness and efficiency, really? Yeah, more about effectiveness and efficiency and the chance to try something new. Absolutely. I think it's also important on the individual level. So that's, that's kind of your, your top-level messaging, to make clear that you're not looking to uh, downsize by automating things in, in all cases. But there's also, on, a, on an individual level, the people who need to be involved are potentially the people who run the inefficient siloed processes at the moment and then when I say involved not just in the conversation get them hands-on give them the opportunity to understand how these things work still one of the most enjoyable projects I've ever been on in this company it's actually quite a long time ago now but it was a net reveal implementation for a major government client and the point at which I joined it, it was it was industrialising, it was really getting a supercharge. And then as part of that, the group of risk analysts that we had provided up to that point were going to be replaced by in-house staff. So we ran a training course. We designed and ran a bespoke training course, how to be a net reveal risk analyst. And the range of skills coming in was very broad. So we had people who had 
you know, great comfort had seen the, the, the tool, had maybe used it, been hands-on with it before, to others who uh, didn't know sort of mathematical techniques, they didn't know how to calculate the percentage change between two numbers. It's a really broad range of technical experience. It was absolutely brilliant. And at the end of it, that was that. They took over from our jobs. And these people had, had supercharged their careers by being involved. They weren't replaced by the technology. They were in, enabled by it. So I think it's really important to think through who's impacted by this. Can we get them involved too? Definitely. Because there's some this focus on technological uh, change, but actually possibly the biggest thing that, that the infographic brought out to me was that it's about cultural change. It's about people and about... Um, getting people working in a single direction rather than guarding their own fiefdoms or focusing on one particular area. It's, it's, it's about kind of almost getting the, the organisational mojo back. Absolutely. Definitely. I think process is another area. We touched on this before. Um, but it's that idea of organisations can move quite slowly and process can stop you uh, from doing certain things, or at least that's the perception. And I think that's another area. You need process owners on board to help enable what you want to do. The great thing about a 100-day proof-of-concept pilot activity is you can say, well, this, yeah, we might break process for this, but let's find the right way to do it. Let's not ignore process. Let's get everybody in the room and say, how can we flex so that we can be more agile, prove the case, find out what works, find out where processes might need to change, and then at the end of it, you can say, right, how do we industrialize this so that it becomes something that works within the robust frameworks that we have. So one group we haven't talked about uh, so far are the actual adversaries, the criminal groups who are laundering money, committing fraud, uh, maybe breaking into a bank um, uh, via some form of cyber attack. Often these are the same people or they're working in sort of loose groups that are organized over the internet and, and sharing knowledge and skills and and all the rest of it, they don't seem to have the silo problem that banks do. And I'm curious as to how you think they overcome them. Okay, they don't have to meet regulation, but how are these people organised? How are they structured? Have you got any insight into that area? So what I think is really interesting about this question is I think what organised criminal groups have uh, a real strength over perhaps what we have and our clients is they're really clear on their vision. If, I think if you asked any organised criminal, what's your game plan, they would say to get enough money out quick and fast and they can articulate their organized crime strategy really quickly really in, in an articulate fashion i think that's something we, we could learn from so when we're talking about and working with organizations about what's their strategy can every person in that organization articulate what their company's game plan agenda strategy is in a language that makes sense to them as easily as an organized criminal gang would say get the money get it quick get out I think the other thing they've got is agility. Yes. So when you have a, a, a financial crime solution implemented, one of the dangers is that you say, well, we've done that now, so we'll just keep churning out the cases. And actually, the MO will change very quickly because the gangs that run these criminal activities, they're not just cranking the handle themselves. As soon as they realise a particular MO has been detected they'll stop doing that and they'll move on to something else. Or they may be even more sophisticated. So if an organisation uh, has detailed transaction monitoring for transactions over a particular limit, 
those criminal gangs will figure out what that limit is extremely quickly, and then you'll find you get rather more transactions that are a pound or two below it, because they know that no one's going to put eyeballs on that. I think it's lifting those signals. They're far more responsive. So I think sometimes when, when we're working or reporting clients or, or in our own organisations, we see the smoke signals, we see what's happening, and we're not so quick to respond. So I think something we could learn from is once you've seen a smoke signal or a sign or two, you need to quickly move. As Chris says, be far more agile. Don't wait and wait and wait. I think that's where the organised criminal gangs are smart. They see something, they move, they shift, they pivot, they try something new. If that doesn't work, they try again something new. They don't keep trying to fix. Um, so the infographic um, looks at the first 100 days, this proof of concept, and we all know you can you can prove a concept and get people really riled up and really excited about the whole idea of changing things, but making that change across a whole organisation is, I'm guessing, a, a lot more of the hard graft. There's a real grind that takes place after that. Um, what have you seen happen within organisations after this initial proof of concept stage? You know, what happens when you get to that productivity point? I think it depends on the findings and it depends on the appetite of the organisation. So a project I did last year, we ended uh-huh. that with a full roadmap for about three years. There were a lot of organisational, systemic uh, and capability challenges uh, that they needed to overcome to fully implement the kind of capability that we'd proved in a, a couple of months. So we built that full roadmap for them. Uh, we sliced it up so that they could see the stages that they would need to go through, building up their people capability, implementing technology change, reviewing their processes. But it really gave them the structure to then plan out what comes next. How do they get from where they are now to, to a future state? Not all organisations will need that major change, but I think all of them should be open to a wide variety of findings and recommendations. Um, I suppose the, the main thing you're hoping that you end up with is, is a clear picture of a prototype solution that's going to work, that's going to deliver value, uh, and and how to implement that specifically, because that's what you can focus your people around. And a few of the organisations I've worked with, I've seen some really, really cool things. So one of them has an annual competition where they where teams can work across the organisation to either solve a problem um, that's been sponsored by a senior stakeholder or a problem that they've identified. They're given... I don't know, 10% of their time over, I don't know, a certain week period to develop the solution, to have a go, build it up, present their findings back. So it's an annual competition. Other organisations I've seen point their talent teams um, at these kind of silo problems as well. So how do you kind of keep momentum going? How do you keep people excited about solving new challenges? Um, uh, so I've been part of, of an organisation where you know the talent community were pointed at key problems to, to solve, and you worked to work with your you know fellow team members who you didn't normally work with to, to solve them. I think that's, I think how if you can keep it fresh, if you can keep solving problems in a new and innovative, exciting way, fresh and uh, excitingly part of, I think you're more likely to get people involved in it for the longer term. Yeah, because very few people want to say, oh, "Actually, I want to carry on doing what I do every day." I don't want any kind of new challenges or anything exciting. It, it sounds like something that's quite good fun, but it's also having a huge impact on the 
positive impact on the organisation. Definitely. Well. I think there's something, the message it sends to people as well, it's almost saying, look, we the C-suite have struggled. This is a big problem. We need the collective brain power and innovative thinking that our organisation has. But also, we, we empower you to exercise choice and judgement. We say that we, we trust you to, um, to do so with, with respect to your colleagues, your customers, our organisation. Telling people that their choice is, is important and they're allowed to have a go and try and fail because not, not all these proof of concepts will, will, will prove, you know, will prove uh, beneficial. I think that's a really powerful message to, to send to your, to your organisation. It raises quite an interesting question, to me at least, sorry. Um, what happens if one of these proof of concepts completely dies, you know, completely fails, it's a, there's a dismal failure. How do, how do you recover from that? How do you move on from that particular point? You, know, you, you do the 100-day challenge, you get to the end of it, and it, for whatever reason it's not worked out. I mean, what happens then? I think it's really important to position this, and, and, and language is important. So I would say failure of this is that you don't complete it. Failure is that you don't actually test anything, the whole initiative falls apart. Mm. Completing the 100 days, doing a full proof of concept, but finding that the concept is proved not to be valuable enough to invest further in, is not a failure. And this is, a, this is almost kind of a scientific method type of concept, where you're saying, we still learn something. And that's valuable, and that we should embrace. But I do think that that's part of your setup, that's part of your initial engagement, is saying, you know, if you're, if you're doing a major system integration, you'll have a business case that says, where, where's our ROI coming? Where do we save money, or where do we make more money because we've invested X million in this? For a proof of concept, for innovation, it's very different. There is no guaranteed ROI your range of outcomes is everything from effectively we lose money because we spend it on doing this thing and nothing comes of it through to we change our organization fundamentally and then the sky's the limit and i think everyone has to go into that particularly those holding the purse strings need to understand that that range of outcomes is is possible and valid so long as we stay the course and learn something it was still valuable to do it i think that's it it's the learning you now know you're now not speculating, you're now not discussing, you've got evidence and you've got rationale to why it's worked or why it hasn't worked. So you either will do it again or you won't do it again. Or you'll do a, a review, why hasn't it worked? What were the blockers you originally identified? Were they the right blockers? Did you get the right people in the room? As Chris says, standing still is it's not an option. I think failure is, is not signing up and not following through the 100 days. What, you choose, what happens at the end of it? Well, that, that's, that's the next step. It's very difficult to put a value on serendipity. You're probably going to find out something amazing during the course of this that you never expect to look for. I think we, we I think organisations can waste a lot of precious time and resources by that con- pontification, by that you know the round tables. Who you know who is what? What are people doing? Is it the right thing? The endless discussion about a theoretical. When you move into reality, when you have evidence from your people about what's working, you can then move forward with purpose. Until then, it really is just speculation. And I guess as well, at the end of the 100 days, you're going to have three teams that have built really strong working relationships with each other. You're going to get through this, um, you know, this issue of organisational silos one way or another, you know, even if they, everybody knows each other's names. You know, and 
can be, and it's it's what it's a message it sends an organisation that we believe that this is so important. We've invested people in solving this. We've taken them off their day jobs. We've given them the time and space to try to have a go to take their ideas forward. That sends a really important message that you know the organisation supports it, and there's a unified vision that you know it takes you out of that mentality we discussed earlier of my problem to I can now know who to go and talk to. So, Holly, Chris, thank you both very much for your time today. Any final thoughts, Holly, before we sign off? I think my kind of final thought is just get going. I think once you've started on the journey, you'll learn what works for your organisation. For me, it's kind of the exchange uh, of knowledge and the opportunity for teams to collaborate that's priceless. That's what's going to move your organisation forwards and start into breaking silos and more into building bridges. So I think, to Chris's point earlier, failure happens when you do nothing. I totally agree. I think it's about time to get started um, and to start to inspire our organisations with what the art of the impossible looks like. Uh, So, Holly, Chris, thank you both very much indeed for your time today. You've been listening to the Intelligence Download from BA Systems Applied Intelligence. Um, If you want to find out more about the infographic to uh, read the full report or even see some videos of our people talking about some of the issues raised, uh, on this podcast today, then just go to basystems.com forward slash problem shared for more information. If you'd like to contact any of us, then you can reach us via learn at basystems.com. Mm-hmm.